0: I think we all have that responsibility to ourselves first and foremost, and to remain grateful instead of hateful. Yeah. Grateful instead of hateful. Yeah. You just pulled out
1: a slogan. That was a bumper I- sticker. Finally got a bumper sticker out of you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I heard, heard it, it through the, the grapevine. grapevine. Welcome. It's the AA Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour. Featuring the Collective voices of alcoholics Anonymous. I'm Don, an alcoholic in Greensboro, North Carolina. Hey, Don, I'm I'm laughing here because I'm
2: collected voices.
1: <laughs> I heard that. I, think I'm, I love that. The voice is a little messed up.
2: Hey, everybody, I'm Sam, an alcoholic in Palm Springs, California. Oh, wait a minute, I'm Sam, an alcoholic in Palm
1: Springs, California. Yep. Yeah. don Uh how are you (laughs) i'm good i have a little bit of a cold so my voice is jumping to odd places a little bit i Uh, suppose no it's you're finally hitting puberty that's what it is your voice (laughs) is changing (laughs) i guess it is well guess what i did recently i have no idea i really do that (laughs) i think you do don't be jealous because you got to go to new orleans i got to go to new york Ooh, new york city i went to new york city and i got to visit the general service office and i got to meet all the people that we work with on this podcast that i've never met in person and i don't think you have either um no i haven't met any of them in person we've done some video calls but so it was great fun to go up and i bet meet everyone and you know one of the people that we work with all the time, probably the most, is Negin. Yeah, Najine is really cool too. I'm glad. I, I really wish that I'd gotten to meet her. <laughs> yeah. So I got. I well, being who I am, I interviewed her. Well, of course you did. It's kind of <laughs> what you do, right? So let's meet Najine. Let's do.
3: I am Negin. I am the administrative assistant here at AA Grapevine. So I do a a little bit of the coordinator work. I'm the assistant and I also am the assistant to the customer service. So I just do a little bit of everything. And then I help with the podcast team, which I love. You are our right arm. (laughs) Yes, definitely. It is an honor. It is. So are you an alcoholic? No, I am not. I am a friend of AA, but I am not an alcoholic.
1: And you don't need to be an alcoholic to do your job.
3: No, for my job specifically, no other jobs in the field, I believe so, but not my job.
1: So I imagine before you came to work for the Grapevine magazine, work for all these alcoholics, you had some preconceived ideas. What is different about working with alcoholics than what you imagined before you started this job? What's surprising?
3: um well i come from a heavy like customer service background so one thing i did notice about working with alcoholics is they're very straightforward um they're very direct so you kind of answer the phone and they're like hey like this is what i need and how can you help me and that's just really it <laughs> uh, they're demanding is what you're saying And <laughs> know I wouldn't say that word but in a way they are very um they're just not ashamed they're not ashamed to tell you what they want and what they need and um you know kind of ask for help
1: well alcoholics there's a place in the big book where Bill talks about alcoholics being enthusiasts and I always thought that was a really positive spin on being very demanding <laughs>
3: Either way, we want to use definitely positive words <laughs> thing that surprised me working here. Um, I was kind of nervous, but these people like uh, just like what they went through and how they maintain such positivity is amazing to me. It actually is pretty inspiring. Like the um like I said earlier, they're just not ashamed. So they're not ashamed to tell their story, they're not ashamed to share it and their transparency in their story is pretty inspiring actually.
1: That's wonderful, Najin. Thanks for talking. Thank you, Don. (laughs) Oh my God, I am
2: jealous. I'm envious. I'm jealous, and I'm all the other things that turn us green. That is so cool. And yes, we are demanding, but I love that (laughs) Najin is so kind and positive in the way that she handled you saying that. (laughs) She's she was diplomatic
1: as could be. I can see her mind working as she was trying to to put evidently she gets some pretty intense telephone calls. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I
2: just, I love that Najin said she loves working with the podcast team because I love working with
1: her too.
4: She's super cool.
2: Me too.
1: She's great. I'm so glad you got to hang out with her a bit. Yeah. And well, I (laughs) I guess my voice again. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I got to go all around the building. Up there is not only the grapevine staff, but there's archives where I got to see the original asket basket uh-huh. that was passed around at the first conventions and all kinds of photos and documents of everything relating to AA they're there and I talked to the librarian and the archivist Neither one of them are alcoholics. I thought it was funny. It's it's probably the only place in the world where somebody would ask, now, do you need to be an alcoholic to work here?
2: (laughs) Does it turn you into one to work here? Do you feel like you need a drink
1: after? (laughs) They They were not alcoholics. They don't need to be. But there's Mm -hmm. some positions like the the editor and the publisher, they're alcoholics. Mm -hmm. And the uh, the various service desks, I think, are. And that's in AA World Services, which Mm -hmm. is on the same floor. And so, Chris, the publisher, took me around Mm -hmm. to all the rooms. I saw the whole thing. It's an incredible view up there on the 11th floor looking out over Manhattan and the Upper West Side. That's where AA World Services, and I was walking around through those hallways, and all the doors were open, and a couple of people popped out of offices and said, "I recognize that voice." <laughs> and so I got to uh, I got to interview a couple of people from AA World Services. Oh, cool! Let's listen to that. I'm up here visiting, and this is a thrill. I've infiltrated the building.
5: i <laughs> uh, Jeff W. I'm the staff coordinator at GSO and correspondent for the Southwest Region. I'm also a member of the AWS board.
1: All
4: right.
5: Uh, My name is Michael R and as I'm new, this is my
4: second week here at uh, AA World Services in the General Service Office. My assignment is the CPC desk cooperation with the professional community and I correspond with Eastern Canada and it's it's a blessing and a thrill to be here. I'm really excited and happy. And you answer questions that come to AA? I receive questions about you know in the in the region relating to groups and that sort of thing, but also from the professional community and members of nursing homes, medical scientists, yeah. doctors, etc., looking for ways that we we support them in carrying the message. Um, and I run all my questions through Jeff here. Yeah, for the time being, and that's how we get a response. We arrive at a response to these questions or inquiries. They vary.
1: Mm-hmm. So if you're two weeks on the job, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what is the most surprising thing about working here?
4: I didn't really know about the, as Jeff was just explaining, the the subtle approach and the thorough look at every question and then when we reply, every word comes into consideration and in how the response that, like as I said, I've been sending them to Jeff. We've been, he's been showing me, here's some samples of language that you might use. Here's some previous responses to similar questions. And everything was just so thorough and carefully crafted that it made me feel like when I hit send, it's like, wow, we really did our best job there. It, I get a little choked up thinking about that, like how much care yeah. we put into, the, into those replies. It's, it's a little more beautiful than I imagined. Oh, wow.
1: Well, Jeff, what's the most common question or at the top of the list?
5: Well, members who are involved in service, they're having discussions at their group, at business meetings and they wonder, did we do that right or how do we find out about this or that or are we approaching this in the correct way? Are there some rules that we don't know about or do they want some rules, you know, can you tell me some of the rules? And often we guide them to the pamphlet uh, the AA group which does have a section about business meetings and It leaves it up to the group to a large degree, but we can sort of tell them that it recommends that they take their time with discussions and that an informed group conscience is really the goal.
1: What's a specific question that's come in recently?
5: Well, this was just today. How much sobriety should a treasurer have? How much sobriety should the group overall chair have? Um, Mm What if uh, somebody from another fellowship, somebody who's a non-alcoholic, actually speaks up at a meeting? Is that appropriate or not? What if it's an open meeting, is that appropriate? If it's closed meeting? And there are answers to that in the AA group pamphlet as well. So we kind of guide them to the literature that has some of the answers, but sometimes the answer is, that's up for you and your group to decide. And then they ask us, well, how do we do that? Well, you know, here's some information about having a group conscience meeting. So, a lot of
1: times it's people calling up wanting to win an argument.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. We try not to get in the middle of that, but we, we can say, well, you might find information like that in this part of the service manual or in this pamphlet. We try to present both sides of things if we can, like, well, some groups handle it like this, Other groups handle it like that. We've read how the office corresponded with groups from the beginning, you know, in the early 40s. We try to mirror that kind of balance. And actually though, in the last couple of years with post-pandemic and everything, There isn't shared experience on a lot of these areas. It's, you know, we're still figuring it out. Mm -hmm. Uh, So sometimes that has to be our response these days and say, well, some groups are trying this and some groups are trying that and we're still waiting to hear more. So if your group solves this in some way, get back to us and let us know because that'll be shared experience we can share with the next group that has that question. Yeah. Misconceptions are something that we deal with too, especially if people think like the staff is changing the big book or the staff changed the preamble, or that's not what we do at all. We take our orders from the General Service Conference and just implement things. We carry things out. And sometimes there's this conception of those people in New York who are (laughs) ruining AA, you know? And first of all, the staff is very eclectic. We're not all from New York. We have two staff members from Texas. You know, Diana's from uh, California and someone from Iowa who's starting soon. We're from all over the US and we all have different opinions. You know, we're alcoholics, AA members, just like everybody else. And so we're different and individual.
1: Yeah. Chris is here who is the publisher of the Great Line Magazine and is an old hand at being on the podcast. It's my third time. <laughs> <laughs> Can people visit the offices?
4: Yeah, we just uh, yesterday opened up again to visitors. There's a protocol to sort of pre-register. So it's up. on the website, how to... No, it's on aa.org, how to yeah. how to register to come in and visit. Yeah. Come on! That's up. the only reason you're allowed in here. That's, why, that's how I got in here.
5: <laughs> <laughs> we had one visitor yesterday from England. We, like, swarmed him.
1: And I understand that you just started up the Friday AA meeting?
4: Friday morning. It starts tomorrow, every week at 11 a.m. AA members are welcome to come.
5: But again, you need to sign up. At the front desk. At the front desk. Advanced notice is helpful because it just makes it easier for you to get past the front desk.
1: Thanks, guys. Thank
5: you, Don.
2: I am livid. Actually, no. (laughs) I so could have nerded
1: out in that conversation with you guys. Eh, I wanted to jump in. Well, it's what he was talking about, the care that they take and the awesome responsibility answering questions from all over the world. It was fun to see firsthand, see how it operates.
2: It's not a, an off-the-cuff answer. I, I have written to A World Services uh, several times over the years. It's a very informative and rich and obviously well-considered response that they send.
1: I wrote to AA World Services. I told them that I had done that in my second year and everybody cracked up and they start saying the terrible twos. So <laughs> <laughs> evidently, they get a lot of questions about rules in year <laughs> two. There's something about it. It was funny. Don, I am so glad
2: you got to experience that. That's that's just really cool. And I'm glad you you took your little magic microphone with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Don, Today, we're having coffee with Don Kay. We'll get to know him a little bit. And let me tell you, one thing sums this fella up great big willing. <laughs> That's true. We'll also read a wonderful letter from Aaron and end with the famous,
1: infamous
2: wits' end joke.
1: <laughs> yeah, the wits' end. That's where the laughter's found at the very wits' end. It's really not that fun. <laughs>
0: My name is Don K. I'm a recovering alcoholic from Orange County, California. Actually, I live in Tustin. My sobriety date is September 25th, 1999. I had lived such a different life before. I wasn't able to see the gifts yeah. of cleaning my life up. Previous, I, you know, I worked at Orange County Probation Department for six years, and I loved it. I worked in juvenile hall. During that time, alcohol became a daily habit, and I found methamphetamine out of the gay clubs. I resigned from the probation department. Five years after I resigned, I ended up on probation in drug court. And my PO that I was assigned was someone I had trained five years before. And so I did the drug court program. It began my journey and they sent me to these damn things called meetings. I am proud to say I'm now a clinician in the very same drug court, DUI court that I graduated from.
2: Did y'all ever think that you would be emotionally
0: affected
2: by anything?
0: I had learned not to be having been raised by my father from the KKK. Really? Yes. My great grandfather was the grand dragon of the Swickley, Pennsylvania KKK. Oh, wow. And that's who raised my dad. So my dad came up and testified against him a couple times for abuse And he was very abusive. He and my mom separated, but I saw him every other weekend. And, you know, every other weekend I had to go to his house and I was terrified because there was no emotion. There was, I learned self-preservation skills at an early age to try to be something I'm not, completely obsessed with what I think you think of me. Mm. My family was very, very conservative. I was this flowery little butterfly. (laughs) But at my mom's house, there was my sister, and she was 10 years older, and she was very abusive herself. She had some mental health issues and later ended up spending the last 15 years of her life in a geropsych unit with multiple sclerosis and schizoaffective disorder. But as a little boy, she would slice my shins with a razor blade when simple hitting or pulling my hair did not elicit the scream that she needed. Hmm. Uh, so I was afraid at mom's house. I'm afraid of dad's house.
1: Yeah
0: totally fear-based and total chaotic home. And yet I can now say as a man in recovery, this man who for the most part was an did his best job at loving me. I honor both of those. I don't what he did to me and the beating and the brutality was not okay. Yeah. Even after my mom died, by the way, and the next day my father said, I need to tell you who your real father is. So I never knew who my real dad was but he willingly kept a secret for his ex-wife and raised me as his own to the best of his ability. And look where he had been raised. And I got to be there on his deathbed. I got to, I got to hold that 93 year old man in his diaper. And I got to just love him, you know, and it took a lot of therapy for me. It took a lot of recovery. He died in 2018. And it doesn't mean what he did was okay. But it means that I get to walk through that. It is part of my puzzle of my life, the mosaic. But I refuse to carry around the emotional baggage that was handed to me by the adults in my life. I can't carry that load anymore. And my sister sponsor said, what are you going to do about your sister? I said, I hate her. He said, no, no, no. You're going to drink over that. So I got to every Sunday go visit my sister in the Jero psych unit the woman who had once cut me with razor blades. My sponsor, of course, had taken me to court. I raised my right hand and got that gift of taking legal conservatorship over my my sister.
1: Well, Don, this is the most incredible story of redemption to where you were able to be healed and forgive and accept and love these people. It's the story that happened to me in my life with my dad, not as brutal as what you're describing, but still, it was difficult. Can you describe how you got to the place that you were able to turn such justifiable resentment into something like compassion?
0: Yeah, Um, well, I'll do my best to describe that. I think it was... It was a whole lot of my sponsor reminding me, and I still have that sponsor that I've had. I got him when I was three years sober, and I just celebrated 23 in September. So I've had him for 20 years, and he would tell me, you need to do the actions first because the feelings will come through afterwards. So I, this was all on sponsor direction. I graduated drug court, sober living home. I get a message on the chalkboard Now, wait a second. You graduated drug court. Is this how you got sober? I got sober September 25, 1999. Graduated drug court after 18 months. Sober living. Wasn't talking to anybody in my family because when I told my mom I was gay at 23 years old, she vomited on the front of my shirt and kicked me out of the house and said, you're not my son. Get away from me. Hmm. So I had kind of been on my own and angry and resentful and hateful. Ever since then, most of that resentment and hate went inwards. I became a full-fledged addict, didn't talk to my family for at least five years. So get a message. They say your mom's had a stroke. She's at St. Jude Hospital in Fullerton. I hadn't seen her in five years. And my thought initially was I called my sponsor because you taught me to call my sponsor. And I said, can you believe it? Now she's had a stroke and now she wants to see me. That my sponsor said, hold up, shut your mouth, get on a bus and get to that hospital.
1: Oh,
2: my God. He
0: said, put one foot in front of the other. That's all you got to do. I walk in the hospital room. My mom holds up a dry erase board that she had written on because she could no longer talk. And uh, she said, honey, can you move in with me and help me? And I'm thinking to myself, well, screw her. So I said, mom, hold on a minute because you guys in my tribe taught me, keep your mouth closed And I went outside the hospital room. I called my sponsor again. So how long are you sober right now? I had a year and a half at this point. Had you worked through the steps? Oh yes, the first time. And it was through all of this family stuff that I got to work them a second time with my sponsor. I called my sponsor and I said, can you believe now she wants me to move in and help her And he said, Don, I'm going to tell you again, you don't understand this, but you will someday close your mouth, go back in there and tell your mom, you will move in with her. He goes, you don't have to understand it. You need to simply follow direction right now. So I did. And I got a year and a half with my mom. I got to bathe her and wipe her after she went to the bathroom and change her diaper and finally shut my mouth long enough to listen to her story and realize that it's not all about me. Okay, Don, you you described the outside
1: way you called your sponsor. And you did what your sponsor said to do. How do you do that inside? What was the process you used to get to the place where you weren't filled with resentment and actually just feeling unwilling to be of service to her or were you still feeling resentful and
0: still did it there's the point both of those can be true i have found i was very angry and hurt and don't you know it's all about me and i'm the victim because i had learned through being abused as a child playing victim makes me not responsible for my own any of my own actions at least in my head yep Mm -hmm. and uh I uh <clears throat> I the other part is I love my mom. I I, I wanted my mom in my life and uh, I I was I was willing to do what my sponsor said because he had been through a very uh, similar situation, so I trusted that man and I was afraid. I followed him because I love my sponsor, because he is painfully honest with me. And it was really that. So I was like, I miss my mom. I love my mom. I grew up very close to my mom. You know, as a small child, of course, I loved her spectator pumps. That was my first sprained ankle (laughs) in the living room when I heard her pull into the driveway. And I had those on. (laughs) But and I had to put my full faith in this man. And so far, he hadn't let me down. It was I was blind. I was blinded by my anger, blinded by fear. And I knew that I loved and I missed my mom and I wanted to do right.
1: Donna, it sounds like what you're doing is putting all your faith in the program and what your sponsor is telling you to do. Is there one particular step that was involved in this in particular, or was it that faith you had been sober this long and you wanted to keep doing what was working?
0: All it was at this point, I wasn't able to think deeply, of, but I knew that if I followed his advice and I relied on my group, AA had become my family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was at meetings five to seven days a week. Mm-hmm. And I could hear the anger and I could hear of other people's familial struggles and I could hear of abuse. I could, so I had heard other people's stories and I thought, If they did it, I can do this. And then my situation presented itself. And I got that gift of 18 months with her. And I got to, I know that Sam already heard this story, but Don, it's, it is one of the, one of my most memorable, um, my mom, huge Angels fan. We grew up in Anaheim. She could tell you on base average, my mom could tell you anything about the Angels, but she got to live long enough to see him win the pennant. This is baseball of baseball so her last mother's day alive after i had already been living with her for a while um i got to surprise her with tickets to the angel stadium mother's day celebration and i surprised her with tickets i get excited wake up on mother's day i come out it's six o'clock in the morning we're going to go to the game but the game did not start until twelve thirty or one fifteen, and she's seated at the counter with her hands folded her angels hat on her rally monkey, her thunder sticks, and her angel's jacket. And she says, honey, could we please go early for batting practice? And I I knew, I know now, that picture of her face and her anticipation was the very first replacement picture I have for my emotional scrapbook up here. Because I have pictures up here in my emotional scrapbook that are not so good. But this was the first one I've heard just being so excited. We went to the game, we get to the seat. Angels lost the game, but we went around the stadium and we went out to the outfield fountain and we threw pennies in the outfield fountain. My mom was big with make a wish and all that. It was two months later, her health was declining. And two months after that, that my older brother, Scott called me and said, Donnie, you gotta get here, mom's dying. And I said, I don't have any money to get there. And he said, her kidneys have shut down. I don't have money to help you get here. But the doctor gives mom three or four days. And I went to a meeting that night. And I got up to the podium at Sponsors Direction. And I said, this is what's up. I can't be there. But I don't want to drink and use tonight. My mom is dying. And I was crying extremely hard. So I sit down. At the end of that meeting, I get surrounded by a crowd of people in that meeting. It was our Friday night, SM stand and model meeting for the gay community. <laughs> and uh, 17 people surround me and they say, listen, we took up a collection during the break. Oh, we want you to be with your family. And they handed me $610. And they said, you're going to go to Montana. Two people from that meeting went home with me. They said, because you might freak out and go drink and use. And I'm getting ready for bed that night. Jonathan gets on the computer to get me a flight. So yeah, I just found surrounded surrounded
1: the, the care Surrounded
0: by the love of the yeah. fellowship. I get up the next morning. Kelly says, we got to go. You got a 10 o'clock flight. She goes, but you got to come out front first. There was 13 carloads of people from that meeting the night before in front of my house. And they said, we're going to escort you to the John Wayne Airport. And they did, and we went as far as we could into security together. We said the serenity prayer, we circled up, and uh, I got on that plane, got to Montana, got to walk in my mom's room. And the first thing she says, she was chill, but she was covered with her blue robe, wires, everything, and she said, okay, honey, do you know what's going on? And I said, I know what's going on, mom. And she said, all right. She said, let me ask you. Do you have your sobriety coin with you? And I said, I do. She said, will you put that coin in the robe of my pocket? And I go, mom, that's weird. She goes, no, it's not, son. She said, that coin gave me my son back. You and your meetings and your A&A people, A&A. <laughs> and she said, gave me my son back and taught me how to be a better mom. <sighs> and don't tell your brother because I, he'll think I'm crazy. She said, but I want to take it up to heaven and show your grandma. I think she'll be proud. I got to go through that. I got to sit there and like just absorb all of that because of the program, because of you people, my tribe. And the next year, people in AA called me and said, we don't want you alone on Mother's Day this year. So we got a surprise for you. And I'm like, what, 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 what? And they said, we're taking you back to Angel Stadium this year on Mother's Day celebration, where you were with your mom a year ago. And so we went to the stadium together, six of us from AA. And we went straight to the outfield fountain where my mom and I had been a year before. And I took a tiny bit of her ashes and I put them in the outfield fountain because my thought is When the angels score or they get a home run and that water shoots up in the air, then my angel's right there in the outfield. (laughs)
1: Don, that's so beautiful.
2: Don, you have made me cry more this time than when I was sitting in that chair in that conference.
1: I know. Sam's blubbering over here and can't even ask a question. (laughs) because, Because the story of love and the change is so powerful to hear. Don. I could
2: sit and continue this on and on. I'm um, sorry. I I ramble. I'm sorry. I ramble. Thank you so much for joining us on this. I mean, this this has been an absolute fantastic
1: conversation. And thank you.
0: I hope I made some sense.
1: You made (laughs) sense, Don. Thanks so much. Our talk with Don Kay was so rich, it hurt to cut it down for the podcast. So for those of you who are interested, keep listening after the show for much more of Don Kay. Hey, Don. So
2: here's that letter from Aaron. Ah, I'm just writing to say I enjoy the podcast so much. Listen every week since I discovered it. Thank you. I'm a full-time 24-7 family caregiver for my spouse of 40 years who suffered a stroke 16 months ago. I'm able to go to one Zoom and one in-person meeting each week and listen to several recovery podcasts besides yours. My favorite other ones are Recovery Rocks, Sober Speak, and Soberful. In addition to the Design for Living and Steps and Tools and Fellowship, virtual mostly these days, I wouldn't be able to do what I do now without being sober and in recovery. One day at a time, God willing, I will have 10 years sober on November 26. Woo-hoo. Thank you, Aaron Kay.
1: Congratulations,
2: Aaron. Ten Congrats, years indeed. 10 years. That's awesome. And thank
1: you so much for writing in, Aaron. Yeah, podcasts have helped me stay sober when I've been isolated as well. And it's one of the reasons I got into this in the first place. Yeah, I remember you whining a little bit about it and we sat down and
2: came up with a plan, right? Yeah, let's do our own. <laughs> so, Aaron, why don't you start a podcast? <laughs> you don't you don't even have to have a resentment in a coffee pot to do a podcast, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> Thanks for
1: writing, Aaron. Thank you so much.
2: A problem drinker was flat broke, so she went to her landlord and said,
1: I'm sorry, but I can't pay the rent this month. Listen, you told me the same thing last month and the month before. Sure,
0: I wouldn't lie. Didn't I keep my word?
2: (laughs) It's really not that funny. Thanks for joining us. The AA Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour is posted every Monday and is produced by AA Grapevine, Inc. We don't speak for AA as a whole. We share the experience, strength, and hope of members to help others recover from alcoholism. Podcast info, including how to call in, is at aagrapevine.org podcast. Find AA Grapevine on Instagram and the AA Grapevine channel on YouTube. All things Grapevine are available at aagrapevine.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous and your city or visit AA.org.
1: And now, more of our conversation with Don Kay. When I was first getting sober, there was a guy in the rooms who was talking about his struggle with his dad, who he mm-hmm. had a terrible time with. The fact that in AA, people share what where they're going and how they're learning to live in relationships and to and to forgive and heal with their parents, it is in the sharing of that that they help others. Now he had no idea what he was doing for me. And what you're doing here and sharing this your story, he shared that his dad was a WW2 guy, Marine, and he never hugged him. And he always felt like his dad never gave him any kind of encouragement or love. And so he just went up to him. This is after working the steps, talking to the sponsor. He was talking in meetings about this for months. And he said he went up to him and hugged him, and his dad hugged him back. But, Because it's not something his dad could do. So he had to initiate it. And I took that and did that with my dad. And my dad was the same way. And he hugged me back. I learned that from it being modeled in the meetings.
0: There you go. But you got to teach your father how to hug his son. Yeah. And how beautiful is that? You know? And
2: I just, I want to say that is absolutely incredible as each individual story is of reunions that happen, the relationships that get healed or that are broken, that come back together. And it doesn't always happen. It doesn't always happen, but it happens a lot. Yes. And that happened, you know, my relationship with my mother and my grandmother, her mother were not broken, but they were certainly damaged by my alcoholism and who I got to be in the years before they died. Sober Sam, it was a beautiful thing that I got to have with both of them. And my father, who had disowned me for 24 years because I was gay, contacted me when I was several years sober and had worked the steps and had been through what I needed to go through, listening to other stories and being around people that I needed to be around. That when he approached me, to reconcile, I didn't throw it back in his face, there you go, and then he died a month later, completely uh,
0: unexpectedly., uh, uh, but you got that gift. I love that,
2: yes, and so these these individual stories are are sometimes they are absolutely heartbreaking and incredible and and make me sit here and blubber and but the things that happen, the relationship building growth reunions all these wonderful things are not an unusual thing for us in recovery that's right right
0: yeah it's crazy i see and i love that you both got to have those experiences and i realized who i learned how to drink from i learned by watching the adults in my life and they were my mom and dad now uh, my mom later became a problem drinker And then she quit the last 15 years of her life, but drinking alone, growing up in those homes. And I didn't really drink until 15, 16. Drinking was my coping skill. It put one layer between me and the horrible way I felt about myself and the rest of the world. Drinking was my protection. It allowed me to exhale. And when I stopped drinking, I never exhaled again until I finally walked into AA, which wasn't too long after quitting drinking, right? Mm -hmm. I only had, I think three weeks sober and I went to my first meeting. Had you heard of AA before that? I had heard of AA, a good friend of mine who was one of my running buddies. Her dad at the time had 20 some odd years. I knew that it was there. I knew that help was possible. I mean, I had worked for 14 years with severely emotionally disturbed adolescents. I knew how some of the machinations of our brain were I didn't know how to apply all of the good advice I had to offer other people, how to apply that to myself. And drinking became more and more and more an escape. I just hated myself. I tried to be this all-American kid. I played football. I was in student government. I was this really well-known kid in high school. And after high school, I, so I went to community college. And of course I went right into the theater department, big that I am. (laughs) I found some people there. I moved to Hollywood for a minute and Pasadena and I thought I wanted to be famous, but I spent all of my money on drinking. I did a Pepsi commercial. I did some background work on shows. I did a ton of musicals and every chance I got I drank. And I especially learned how to do that when I worked at Disneyland. And I was working at Disneyland entertainment division from the age of 16 to 20. So I learned to drink at the Tragic Kingdom. There was some party <laughs> of fools that. I eventually made it into the character department. I was Goofy, Tigger, Captain Hook, Winnie the Pooh in the park, and I'd get drunk before we did Goofy. And at first it was kind of cute. I was like, I'm just trying to get into character. And then, you know, Tigger accidentally found some cocaine a couple of (laughs) times. Tigger Tigger was really bouncy. (laughs) But alcohol and other substances that separated me from reality were what I craved because reality was far too painful for me. Yes. Yeah. So much of that has to do with the trauma of abuse and all of those things and just not feeling like I fit. Did you fit into AA when you came into AA? I was horrified. Don't you know who I think I am? Mm. And don't you know, I used to work at the probation department. And I this and I that. And immediately within a few months in drug court that I was in, we had to go to seven meetings a week. And so I chose AA meeting. It was closest to my house. I didn't have a car. And I went to this meeting every single day at 12 noon. It's called the Brown Baggers meeting. And all I was told was, close your mouth. You don't need to talk, which you can see I love to talk, but I shut my mouth and I began to hear my story from landscapers, doctors, lawyers, professionals, all of this other people who at first thought, don't you know who I am? Right. And I realized, oh, my God, I fit. I do fit. And they kept telling me that. And I was so desperate to find I was so desperate to find a tribe that I accepted that. They became my tribe and I got really active in Alcoholics Anonymous and I took commitments and I I love AA, the steps. I've, I've now worked them fully three times, you know, and it's been not so good in the past couple of years with COVID. I very recently uh, was diagnosed with cancer. I've had two major surgeries since then. I'm undergoing chemo. I'll have chemo Tuesday. And so my immune system is now such that I can't go to meetings. So I am separated from actual meetings, but my whole world is people in recovery. AA has got me through this cancer thing. You know, thank goodness, even after they took out 21 lymph nodes from my groin, but that's the most action my groin has seen in years. (laughs) I (laughs) knew something was going to come there. (laughs) And I can tell you AA and the fact that I also work as a clinician in drug court and DUI court, all of my friends, I talk to my sponsor frequently. All of those things—that's the only thing keeping my head above water. Because for two months there, I didn't know anything about a pen scan, and uh, and I thought I was gonna die, you know. And I still might. I still might, because you've got a forty percent chance of living five years with with melanoma. But I'm going to be part of that forty percent. This is all because Alcoholics Anonymous gave me a life that I love. They gave me a life that I'm not ashamed anymore. You know, they gave me a life that I got to take care of my sister because after a very short time, it went from all of my resentment to all about love with this girl. She never had the capacity to love me in the way that I expected a sister to do. I got to be there for my dad and I get to be there during cancer. And I am not afraid as long as I have Alcoholics Anonymous on my side, they'll never leave me. Something bad will happen only if I leave them. Yeah. Don, thank you again.
2: It's really good to see you. I hope the best for you with all this cancer I, yes. I hate that's going on, but I know that you are absolutely surrounded with people who've
0: got you. Well, and the other part of the gift, Sam, my sponsor reminds me of this. He said, you know how many people are watching you? Because I'm kind of loud and I'm kind of present and I'm there. And, <laughs> and uh, he said, people are watching you to learn how to walk through their own yes. cancer or trauma or whatever. He said, there's... We always get to be a silent soldier for someone else and uh, keeping my dignity, not treating people like hell, still being afraid, but learning how to be afraid and brave at the same time is exactly what I need to do for my own sanity and for the men that I work with. And so this is, it's all a gift. Yes, it is.